And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. All right, I have one more announcement before I go into the episode. I know these can be super annoying, but this is not a paid advertisement. This is actually about one of my projects. I made a feature film called Fractals, and guess what? It is now available for streaming. Just visit my website, ericnorcross.com. Look for the movie Fractals, and there will be a list of platforms where you can stream it. Thanks. Welcome back to the podcast. This is a very special episode. This is the 100th episode, and of course, if you know me, you know that when it comes to these arbitrary episode numbers, I take them very seriously, and I want certain people to fall into the lineup in a certain way, and for the 100th episode, I knew I wanted to do something special. I mean, after all, we've done 99 episodes before, which in and of itself is an achievement, but for as we're entering three-digit episode numbers, I want to s- start off this sort of new era with somebody that I know personally who's had a lot of impact on my life as a creative. And there's only one person I could think of to fulfill that role and who has not been on the podcast. And ever since season one, I wanted this person on the podcast. Ever since season two, I wanted this person on the podcast. And in season three, I finally manned up and I reached out to the person. I I said, I got the one... To myself, I said, I got the 100th episode coming up. It's about time. And the reason it took me so long is because I haven't really been in contact with this particular person for many, many years, ever since I moved to New York, really. And how do you reach out to somebody and say, hey, it's been a long time. Let's catch up publicly on a podcast. Not an easy question to ask, but when you're fast approaching the 100th episode, it's time to man up and do it. And that's what I did. And so my guest today is a musician named Jeff Cusack. Jeff uh, was around in this sort of era in my life when I found film, when I found music, when I found writing, when I found, found that I could actually live my best life as a creative person. And he's sort of a great model for it. So between about, I'd say 1998 and 2003, This is sort of the era that I really knew Jeff. Um, I knew that he was a transplant from Connecticut who was living on an island off the coast of Maine, that he was a musician. Um, Later in that bracket of years, he would perform live performances at the restaurant I used to work at. And we would trade guitar notes on the public ferry that would take us to and from the mainland every day. So when I was commuting to school, he was commuting to work. And I would ask him questions about the guitar and I would, yeah, he was just a great guy to know. And he ended up scoring some of my early films. So my first feature film that I made my senior year of high school called 16 Stories, he did original music for that movie. And then in 2002, 
I made my short film Hero for a Day, and he did the original score for that movie, for the first version of that movie. And uh, I recently restored that movie for the 20th anniversary screening, which happened this past August. Uh, and um, I think that's one of the other reasons he sort of, I sort of got the courage to reach out and ask him is because after that screening, I realized a lot of people just kind of, they're kind of like really nice up there. Like they're nicer than I kind of remember, but they're also nicer in comparison to the people that I deal with every day in the city. So <laughs> I was like, you know what? I'll just reach out to him. I'll reach out to him because this screening has gone so well that I kind of had the courage to do so. So I just did it. And so I'm glad I did because it was a wonderful episode. We do talk about uh, Jeff's music, his writing, uh, how his music has evolved over the years. Um, how he got from Connecticut to Maine is an interesting story. How he recorded his album Punt. And his album Punt... Um, that album is a staple of my music collection. Whenever I'm migrating my digital collection to another computer, that's the first album I check to make sure it's there. Like, that's my barometer. If Punt is there, then that's okay. I don't care about all those Led Zeppelin albums, those Pink Floyd albums. Like, those can be reacquired if they have to be. They're, they're available. But Punt is kind of rare at this point. And so I always make sure that I have it. And I house, not only do I have it on my iPod, my iPhone, my iMac, and my editing system, but I also have three CDs of it. So I've got my main CD, and then I got two backups. I got my backup of my backup. So <laughs> his music is very beloved in this household. It's very cherished, and um, I'm so happy to have him on. One other interesting thing about his music um, is he covered, on his album Punt, he covered a song called No Sense. And no sense for those of you who've seen my movie fractals that song is the root of the entire score of that movie this movie that i made over the pandemic it's a feature film and the whole score is rooted in this song no sense which was originally written by another islander named eric anderson but the only version of it that was available was a version on jeff's album but the main lick of the song uh, which I've always been obsessed with went something like this. And I don't know, for like 20 years, that lick has been stuck in my head. And I'm like, well, I need, I need to do something with it in terms of my film work because it's such a great lick. And I first reached out to Jeff a couple of years ago, just to be like, Hey, do you have the songwriter's contact information? I'd like to reach out to him to see if I can use it. And he put me in touch with the songwriter and I was able to acquire permission to use the song and to root the whole score in it, to create a cover version of it with the, the composer of my film, Lyndall Descant. Um, of course, that lick isn't even part of the version that we did, but that's okay. <laughs> um, and then that was it for like two years. And then the hundredth episode came up, and I'm like, I got to, I'm going to reach out to him again, and we're going to get him on the podcast. I got to man up. I got to do this. I got to like be brave. I got to live my best, best life. And the only way to do that is to have courage, and don't take no for an answer. Of course, you know, I'm over dramatizing it because in my head everything is a big dramatic thing. But I did, and it was a quick yes. It was like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. I'd be happy to. I'm like, oh, okay, that was easy. That was awesome. 
Thanks for making it easy for me. I appreciate it. And so my 100th episode, it's exactly what I wanted it to be. Somebody meaningful, impactful, who's living their best creative life. And uh, I couldn't be happier to feature him as the guest on my show this week. Please welcome Jeff Cusack, and I'll see you on the other end. Hey Jeff, how you doing? Long time. Yeah, how you been? I've been good. I've been good. I uh, how you been? Not bad. You know, had my rocky road thing with being old. You know, parts mm. breaking down, and <laughs> but I'm still kicking. You still performing? I haven't performed since February. 2020 because of covid mm. and um um i had some surgery and these three fingers are numb i don't feel the strings anymore so i'm having therapy for that and then i'm going to start r- playing again uh in 2023 so oh, good but oh, yeah, I, yeah i had a hiatus because uh, you know, I you probably don't know, but I had a kidney transplant years ago, and so I have no immune system, so I have to stay out of where people are crowded in and stuff. So most of my shows are going to be outside shows. Yeah, I didn't know that. Um, yeah, the only medical thing I remember is um, you had that bandage here at one point. Oh yeah, I had that was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah. I had lymph, lymph nodes have taken out there. Oh, that's what it was? Yep. That was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I, um, my, my, my head, like, everything from, like, 1998 to 2003, everything lives rent-free in my head. And I'm always thinking about that window of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's so, cool. Yeah. So, it's yeah. good to see you. Are you still on Peaks Island? I am. Cool. Yeah. You like it? Yeah, I do. I like it a lot. But I, uh, I, I occasionally I run into Taylor Barden. You know, not too often, but you know, like once a year. <laughs> on Peaks Island? Yeah. Usually he comes out to visit to Cliff, and he'll usually call me and let me know when he's in town. And so I'll meet up with them, like, in Portland or something. Oh, cool. That's yeah. great. I, uh, I've been trying to stay connected more and more with people because I lost touch for, like, 20 years, just slowly. Yeah. And I was there for the first time since, like, before the pandemic. I was on Long Island at the end of August because that film that Brandon and I made, the yeah. Historical Society screened it again for, like, 20 years after we screened it at the Spar. And so it was kind of a cool event. 
and it was weird seeing people like all these like kids that i knew now look like hippies who are like in their 30s <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it that's long island <laughs> yeah um so thanks for coming on the show um yeah, I thought I was thinking like I'm approaching like my hundredth episode. I'm like, I need to talk to somebody special for the hundredth episode. So who's it going to be? And um, I had, but I've been meaning to reach out to you since I started this thing. But I just, um, I don't know why I hadn't. Uh, maybe nerves because <laughs> when you haven't talked to somebody in a long time, it's just like, will they will they answer my emails? That kind of thing. Right, and, right. and I'm like that with every. I'm like that with the friendliest people on, in the world. So, you'll be you'll be 100 now, <laughs> episode 100. Right at age 100. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I I really appreciated you sending me those kind of unreleased tracks before right. this because it was interesting hearing the rock version of Stronger Every Day. Right. I'm so used to the version that's on the album. Right. Yeah, was that um, was that one of your your songs that you wrote when you were like a teenager? I actually wrote that for my mother when she passed away, and and I was uh, probably I was in my late twenties, I think. Yeah, but yeah, and the acoustic version was the one that I wrote first. And then I was playing with a band at the time. Uh, I had a band. And so I said to them, well, let's, let's put this down. But let's put a different feel for it so that I could use it for radio or something if I wanted to. Because at the time, a lot of power music was out there. Power, power bands and stuff like that. You know, Not quite heavy metal, but just really strong. Um, strong big sounds and so that's uh what our approach was to the song was to make it big you know so do you experiment a lot like that like if you if you write a song on an acoustic guitar do you always try to find a way to see what it like what it's like when it's translated into more of a rock sound yes yeah i do do that i and i go both ways um the song Two Souls, I'm not sure if I sent that one to you. That one, the version, if I did send it, the version that you heard is the original of what I recorded. And when I was working on tracks for to do an acoustic album, which I never finished, um, that was one of the acoustic. And I ended up liking the acoustic version better than the uh, than the band version, it 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 had more um, more soul to it, you know. But uh, it was uh, yeah. So I do I do switch things around like that, and I've taken older songs and then revamped them into different different styles and stuff, you know. Like maybe turned it into a bluegrass song or something like that, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Do you are you um so you sent me some stuff from um was it the late nineteen seventies? That's about well uh, dating you? No. 
uh, one of the tracks, or two of the tracks that I sent you was done around 1974. Oh, 74, okay. Yeah, that was the um, uh, the one called Lost in Love and then Love on the Run. One was a 45 that I released, and Lost in Love was the A side, and Love on the Run was the B side of that. And those you know, were- it was interesting hearing, hearing um, a song, these songs were very they sounded very much of that era yet it was still jeff cusack and that was totally like freaky for me yeah yeah it yeah it was definitely i i do have a tendency to fall into periods you know of music like what's going on in the sounds like some of the songs that i wrote for punt um were actually influenced by the bare naked ladies uh by how they're their energy and that kind of stuff. And that's what, how those songs came to be. Some of the ones on punt. Um, but yes, what you, you're absolutely right that the songs for the 74, that was pretty much what was going on. You know, Dan Fogelberg, James Taylor was big, you know, um, Seals and Croft, um, you know, Jackson Brown, all those guys. And so that was more in that kind of a vein. Yeah, I, I like hearing you say Danny, Dan Fogelberg because the only reason I know that name is because you had him on your playlist at the Spar. Yeah. And you had also had two Bare Naked Lady songs, if I remember correctly. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Still two artists that I love, you know, yeah. Bare Naked Ladies. And unfortunately, Dan passed away uh, years ago. So. Yeah, there's a lot of people, too, that like were active when I was living on the island that have since died and they've died young, like that guy from, um, he did interstate love song. I don't remember the band's name. Uh, Scott Weiland. Is that his name? Scott Weiland. I know he that died. name. I know yeah, that. He, uh, uh, it's going to kill me if I don't remember the name, but that's okay. He's just, he like died and I'm like, he's dead. He's been dead for a few years now. It's so weird because he, I felt like he was young. Like he was only in his twenties, like in the year 2000, like right. it's super weird to yeah. be like, to live past all of these people who, I don't know, had more resources <laughs> to stay alive. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I remember, um, maybe it was around 2002 when we were, you were scoring my short film, and you were talking about how you had gone back into your back catalog of like songs that you wrote when you were a teenager and you were taken yeah. aback by how angry they were. Did you ever continue to unpack some of that work? I, some of them I did. Some of them I let them, left them be. Um, you know, it was the angry young teenager, you know, that's, so it, it was, uh, it was angst music before, you know, people like uh, Pearl Jam and, uh, and Nirvana and stuff, but it was it was definitely angst music, you know, where <laughs> an angry kid, <laughs> angry at the world. But back, you know, back when I was in my teens, it was you know the Vietnam War was really hot, you know, it was huge. Um, I was at Woodstock in '69, so there was a whole different 
feel in the world then, you know, and, and as I grew older towards the age of 18, I was, my draft number was like 19. So I was going to be drafted and they were going to send me to Vietnam. And luckily within the 30 day period, when I had to report to the draft board, uh, President Nixon abolished the draft. And so I got reaffirmed as like ready for service, but not needed to go. So, so there was a lot of things that, you know, it made me angry because they were going to send me off to a war that I didn't believe in at all, you know, and, um, and I had friends die in that war. And so it, it was just a different time for me then, you know, but I, Yes, I was an angry teenager. <laughs> well, you had a right to be. I, yeah. I remember like hearing a concert. Um, it was a recorded concert with Bruce Springsteen where he was talking about how all of his friends were taken. And most of them didn't come back, but the ones that did, he couldn't be friends with anymore because they'd all changed. Yes, um, absolutely. And that just sounds like a horrifying era to live in. Yeah, yeah. I had a friend who came back, and um, he if a car backfired, he would go into these, like, he'd just go into another world and he'd, you know, start screaming and going crazy and stuff. And it was just really sad for him, you know. Um, and, uh, he's not alive today, you know, he, but he he needed mental, mental help years ago. But, the you know, the stuff that they're doing now for veterans and stuff, was never around there. You know, if you were a little off, they threw you into a VA hospital and let you sit there and rot pretty much, you know? So, yeah, but, uh, it was a, it was a sad time. Those early, the late sixties to the early seventies. Yeah. I, and I, I once worked with a guy at the spar who was sure that that's why like the music from that era stands out above everything that's come after that it's just because it was created in that moment of just anxiety and desperation and yeah yeah there's a lot of tunes that are really speak to that whole era you know back there between people like Joni Mitchell and um you know I think uh, the Eagles were coming around at that time but then you got the folk singers of the the 60s who you know like bob dylan and and um i already said Joni mitchell i'm trying to think of uh tom Waite. he was one so you got all these people who were really um some of them were political activists but some of them were not they were just they told a story they were poets and told a story you know and uh yeah, so it was it was quite interesting. I used to play it a lot in coffee houses when I was like in my teens and stuff like that. You know, there were coffee houses. I was I was living in Connecticut, and I used to play in uh, one that was called Bubbit, a coffee house, and then I played it um, one that was in New Haven. Oh, I can't remember. I think it was something like the place or something, but a lot of folk singers and I met a lot of really talented folk singers and um, 
it was really good. It was good for my career. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you, so you were in New Haven. So were, do you, you grew up on the southern part of the state? I grew up, yeah. I grew up in a town called Branford, which is about eight miles east of New Haven. Okay. And it's a shoreline town. It's a, you know, at the time when I was there, it was a quaint little town, you know. Not many people, but now it's it's all built up and stuff, and so it's a little different. But it's still it kept its charm. the The t- town center kept its charm. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I tend to just pass through the northern part of the state for the most part. Right, right. I well, I don't I don't get back there either. I mean, when we go to visit my daughter in New Jersey, we go you know we go through the northern part of the state and then head down to the uh merritt parkway you know and then and that's then we go straight shot to new york so uh, oh wow yeah I, I even skipped the merritt like i'll take i'll go through the berkshires and just kind of hit i don't know if it's 84 or 81 or one one of these yeah, it's 84, um, 84 84 all the way to the newburgh beacon bridge and then i'll kind of go down the west side of the hudson yeah. I park my car on the North Shore of Staten Island because <laughs> it's all free parking. Oh, nice. Yeah. And they don't do alternate side parking um, in this particular neighborhood. Yeah. So I skip the I skip the densely populated areas when I drive. Right, right. Yep. But uh, I've yeah. been doing this thing with my sister where every quarter – we would meet halfway between Gorham, Maine and New York. And I would drive up to around like Hadley, Massachusetts and right. she'll drive down and we'll do brunch and then we'll drive back. And it's like a one day thing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that. Yeah. The, uh, she, the deal was though that she'd do it as long as she doesn't have to go through Connecticut because all their highways are encompassed by Jersey barriers and that stresses her out. Oh, right. <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, yeah. How did you, so I'm interested in like how you came from Connecticut to an island off the coast of Maine, specifically the furthest flung island in Casco Bay. Like, this is the last island you can get to by right. ferry. Right. Well, it all started, we had purchased a house on Sebago Lake. And um, we had been going, you know, pretty much every other weekend or so back and forth between this house on Sebago. And, and Connecticut. And at the time in Connecticut, I was working for a bank in Norwich, Connecticut, called Chelsea Groton Savings Bank. And they put on a program to train their officers of the bank to be better open and to achieve the things in life that they really wanted to achieve. And so little did they realize that one of my goals was to get the heck out of Connecticut and move to Maine. <laughs> so I did that. I did exactly that. I, you know, I told, I gave them my notice. I got a, a job at um, Maine bank and trust, which was a brand new bank at the time when I got there. 
and um, I got a job there. And I came up uh, about seven to nine months before my family. And so I lived in the Sebago house. And then when we, we came up, we had already, I had already written a letter because one weekend my wife and I were in at Casco Baylines and we saw this sign that said Cliff Island. We're looking for school aged children to keep our school open. And I said to her, I said, Hey, this kind of sounds interesting. And she says, Yeah. So I wrote to Roger Burley at the time and to see if we were a good fit for it. And we met with him. And the next thing you know, we were on Cliff Island. I mean, my wife came up. We stayed for a little while in the Sebago house, um, but we quickly moved to uh, Cliff. And so our our goal of what we were trying to do happened. <laughs> it took it took almost a year, but it did happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I think there were a few kids um, who wound up over there for that because of that sort of call for families. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Some so, of them are still there. Yeah. Interesting. We did. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like with cliff Island, I became friends with more people from there than from long Island. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think just a lot of the art minded people wound up out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cause I had, I had some really great conversations with Eric Anderson on the phone after you gave me his number and he's like, Oh, well I have more songs and I'm like, Oh really? Cause I have more projects I need songs for. But he said they were buried in this old format called um, mini disc, but he didn't have a way to extract them. So I was thinking about sending him a mini disc uh, unit and right. instructions on how to do that because yeah. I'm interested. And then also I had, Lowy on the podcast. Lowy's a published author now. Oh, okay. Um, I knew she had done some stuff, but I didn't really know what. Yeah, I think Cliff Islands is like it turned out a lot of really interesting creative people. Eric is a great songwriter. He really <sighs> writes good music. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we um I was so happy when he gave me permission to use use it. Um and for those listening, we're talking about a song called No Sense that was the it was on initially covered on Jeff's album and I ended up asking the writer of the song permission to sort of root my entire movie score in this song. And I found this, um, this woman named Lindell who was more than happy to do it. I told her, I want to hear what it sounds like if a female covers it. And so she, she just like broke it down and rebuilt it in her own sort of sound. I'm like, this is interesting. It's not what I would have envisioned. Um, and, our whole movie score is rooted in the song that really the only version of it you can hear other than what's in our movie is on Jeff's album. And, um, it's funny cause Eric's like, Eric told me he didn't remember writing it. That's the only reason he gave it to me. He's just like, take it. I don't even remember writing it. So yeah, I can't he, like, <laughs> he and I sort of, he had the structure. He had the whole song basically. And then, I sat down with them and tweaked it, and we tweaked the song to make it a little more interesting and stuff. Um, he was coming from like a Dave Matthews kind of angle, and I said, "I said, yeah, well, this song is doesn't have that Dave Matthews feel." I said, "But it's really good, so let's 
twist it up a little, just a little bit. And so we worked on that. And then uh, Taylor Barden and I worked on all the vocal tracks and how we were going to structure all the vocal tracks. Well, yeah, this is one of um, two songs that I could recognize Taylor's voice on. What, how did he end up singing? Because I know that like in live performances too at the spa, he was always the one singing it. How did he end up being? Wait a second. Let's see. You mean on No Sense or which song? Um, you had another song um, on the album that's Taylor as well. Um, it had a... Sorry, I'm brain farting on the title. But it had a really like strong guitar picking intro. Um, let me see if I can pull up my music. That, that uh, was written by Taylor. Oh, Hear Me Out. Yeah. That, that was, was written, written by him? By Taylor, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that, but that album in itself is a mixture of my songs, some songs that Taylor, um, and, uh, and Eric collaborations and even the three of us getting together on stuff we did. And, um, yeah, Taylor, it it was originally the album was going to come out as uh, 4370 because that's what we were calling ourselves. And um, then Taylor bowed out of the, you know, before we finished the whole project. So I finished it up and I said, what do you want to do? Do you, will you give me the rights for your song that you had done on the album? He said, yeah, I don't care. Take it. It's fine. And so that's how it became my album with the support of 4370 because that the 4370 then became all any members who supported me who were my backup band so it changed after taylor barden uh leslie geister came katie murphy came roger robinson uh frank Lorino, uh michael floyd um you know Oh God! So, um, so Leslie, Katie, and Michael—they're all on that album. No, no, oh, they're okay. not. They came—they came after that album. Oh, okay. That album is pretty much Taylor, myself, um, my Machida, who was a Japanese um, piano player from Berkeley, um, and the guy who is. Uh, his name is Warren. Um, he goes by a different name now, and he's um, he's uh, what do you call it? Uh, he's the drum master, or the scratch master for I think it's Limp Biscuit or something like that, or one of those big bands. And he was the drummer, but he changed his name after after the album. He's on the album, and he's listed as Warren something, and but he changed his name later on after the album. But I still keep in touch every, through Facebook with him because he tours all over the world. Uh, but he was the drummer. She was the um, piano player. Um, Mike, uh, I can't think of his last name, but his name is on the album. He was an, also a Berkeley player from, um, bought, he was from Massachusetts. Like I said, Mai was from Japan. And Warren was... Um, from uh, West uh, Virginia, I think it was somewhere around DC. 
who's down that way. And then the the fiddle player that was on it is Leslie Campus. Trying to think, who else did I use? Anybody else on that album? And you did the set. You did the saxophone work. Yeah, yeah. I did that. Um, and I did most most of the vocal and and backing vocals myself, except for Taylor was on a few backing vocal tracks. Um. I didn't this yeah this time around I didn't use any female vocalists on on any of the tracks. I've done that in past. I've used female vocalists um for my background vocals. Um but yeah, on this one I did not. It was pretty much overdubbing myself or me doing a harmony with myself or you know adding layers of me and Taylor. Yeah. When you were recording some of these other uh, musicians, like the 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 fiddle player, uh, you had to transport this person all the way to Cliff Island to record their. We work. actually recorded that album in Connecticut. Oh, when I lived in Connecticut, I owned a recording studio called Sounds Edge Recording Studio. Oh, interesting. I owned it with a friend of mine named Dennis Nardella, and so what happened was when I moved to Maine, I sold my share out to Dennis. And he owned the whole thing. And then what happened when I decided to put the album together, I, we, we all packed into a, um, like a, a Yukon you know, truck, you know, SUV, and headed down to Connecticut and recorded it at uh, that studio. And then it got mixed and mastered by Joe... Um, oh at the recording studio here in Portland or in Westbrook. Joe. Oh, uh, I think I know who you're talking about. He, he was the, he was the lead guitar player for the copters in Portland. Oh God. Oh, yeah. Terrible. I can't remember. I think his name is on the, is on the credits, you know, on the album, but he mixed and mastered that. Uh, but the raw tracks and everything were done down in uh connecticut at the old recording studio that i owned oh interesting i had always thought it was recorded on cliff island for some reason no nope because uh, i knew you were building a studio out there at one point i did i was i was and then we ended up moving before i finished it i had everything the sound room was in everything i had it, uh quarters upstairs in the barn to where people could come and sleep while they were recording and everything and but I never finished it. We moved off the island. Yeah. And so, with the songs from the album, when you were performing it with the subsequent band members of Forty Three Seventy, um, oh well, I should actually mention. I think this is very cool that you called it Forty Three Seventy. For those of you interested, Forty Three Seventy, I know straight away is a reference to the coordinates at the very entrance of the Gulf of Maine. Uh, which is where Casco Bay is located, and, and I think it's cool that you called it called it that. But um, when you had when you were performing with Mike and Leslie and Katie, um, and I only say their names because I know who you're talking about because <laughs> they're all Long Island people. But um, were you, what songs from the album were you performing with them regularly, and did you have to rearrange any of those songs to fit sort of who they were as musicians? Um. We mean off of punt. Yeah. Okay. Um, we continued to do, 
if I could only be dreaming. Um, my Grandfather's Field, I think, is the other song. Oh, God. I haven't listened to the album in so long. Um, Let me give you the track listing. There was, yeah, there was the, the so, one where the fiddle player played in it. That one we kept, where Leslie Campus played in it. I that think the, one. The Field has it, might have a fiddle in it. Um, there's My Time to, okay, so there's, it goes, If I Could Only Been Dreaming, No Sense, The Way Life Should Be, Hear Me Out, My Father's Sonship, Builder of the Field, My Time to Live Stronger Every Day. Okay, hold on. Okay, so um, we didn't continue to do No Sense. We continued to do If I Could Only Be Dreaming, um, It's My Time to Live, um, uh, The Way Life Should Be, and I think there was one more. Read that track again to me, what it was. Um just go down the list if i could only be dreaming no sense the way life should be hear me that's out. me nope that's taylor my father's son that's uh, me shipbuilder shipbuilder that's me oh yeah that was a that was yep, a so song. that one was so all the ones that were written solely by me we we could, they continued and translated into uh whatever uh 437 morphed into at the time you know, so whoever, whatever players came to play with me, so we would rearrange the songs. Like I said, some of them would end up sounding like a bluegrass song rather than what you hear on the on the uh, on the album. So yes, they did. You know, they did morph. You know, as the different players came in, because I always like to have the musicians that play with me have total artistic freedom to do whatever they think they should do and take my song and do whatever you think you should do with it. You know, if you, cause it'll only make it better, you know? So, um, I've always felt that way. So that's how come as members changed, you know, uh, started the songs, just the feel the you know, the, the skeletal structure of the songs stayed the same, but the instrumentation caused different feels in the song. So it, you know, it almost, like I said, some of them ended up sounding like, more like, um, union station rather than, than 4370, you know? So, uh, but yeah, it's, it, that's, yeah. So that's what happened with the songs post album, you know? Um, because I didn't have the, rec I, the people that originally recorded it with me, after the album and after it was all finished and we released it, they all went in different directions. Um, you know, Taylor Barden left to move to Boston. You know, my Machida moved back to Japan, you know. Um, and I, like I said, Warren went off to play with, uh, you know, he, he's a huge star now. And, you know, so it's, um, everybody just disbanded. So then I said, okay, well, let's, this thing back let's put something back together and it started with just myself leslie geistert and katie murphy the three of us and then michael floyd called oh no he didn't come in the next but then we needed to play for the the anniversary of long island's society secession all right 
We so I said, oh, we can't just do it with three people. We need to have something. We need a bass player here. So Roger Robinson from Great Diamond came over and played. It was so then it was Katie, Leslie, me, and Roger. And uh, then a Michael approached me after that whole show at the wharf down on Long Island and said, uh, hey, could I try out for your band? And I said, yeah, sure. Come on in. You know, and he came in and he fit really well. Um, he really added stuff to to the band. He had a synth guitar, which was really awesome, which he, you know, like when we used to do songs like um, songs like by Bob Marley and stuff like that, his guitar, he could make his guitar sound like steel drums. And so it was really cool. I mean, he added a whole different dimension to the sound just by this one guitar. And he had a special rigged pickup on, it was a, um, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, what's the, I can't think of the guitar maker. He, uh, anyway, uh, he, he had a special pickup mounted on this thing, into this thing. And it had a whole brain box that he used and he could, adjust the sounds to whatever he wanted so it was cool because we really made out well doing like some weird talking head songs and things like that so it it, it ended up being really a quite a good add to the band so yeah that sounds like fun um i wish i'd been around to hear some of that because mike was one of those guitarists that i found out too late that he was a musician like i didn't know for a long time until probably like just about before i moved away yeah um and then i when i went back in august i i'd heard that um he had had he has another band there and they had done a performance and like too few people showed up and they were having a problem with sort of people wanting to go out and attend these types of events. Right. Um, and so they were concerned about having a film screening and Brandon was like, Oh, well we live in an age of apathy. And I'm like, I don't, I don't 100% believe that, but um, I get what, what he's saying. Like if, if somebody like Mike, who's from what I understand is a really good musician is having trouble getting people to come to his show, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on on the island, but um, right. There, yeah, I remember just people always showing up to the spa to hear you perform. So right, I don't know and, what... and when they have the dances at the VFW Hall of, on the island, it's usually packed. Yeah, you know? but uh, yeah, Michael. Uh, the band is called Strange Brew that he's playing with now, and it's Michael and the two guitar players are Michael and his son-in-law one of his daughter's husbands is the other guitar player. And he is a fabulous guitar player. Um, I don't know him personally. I know him to see him, but I don't know him personally. But uh, I, I think they have some YouTube tracks out there of them playing and they're very good. They're really good. I'm going to write this down. Cause that's kind of cool. I'm going to look that up. Yeah. Strange brew kind of like I, sh I was meaning to ask Michael if he plays that song, Strange Brew off of Disraeli Gears by Cream, you know? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah. So everybody seems to, you know, Roger still plays. Um, I don't know if Leslie and K 
Katie are still actively playing. I know they were after I kind of left and decided I wanted to start a different band. And so I got some, a guy named Chad Saroy and, uh, uh, oh God, Andrew um, Furman, Andrew Furman. And then Frank Lorino, who's been my drummer with me ever since right after the punt album was done, I met Frank Lorino and he's been my drummer ever since. And so he travels from band to band with me, but, um, but yeah, so we did that one. We did that version of the band with the four of us and that went on for quite a while, quite a few years. And then, then, uh, it was right around just a little before COVID hit. And, um, we kind of like, we couldn't get together to rehearse. We couldn't get any gigs. So we all just sort of said, eh, you know, and, um, walked our separate ways. And, uh, Frank still was playing in a jazz band down in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And, uh, the other two guys started another band called, um, like the struggle or something like that. And they're, they're pretty good too. They opened for some big name band at Thompson's point here in Portland just recently. But yeah, but the, you know, over the years I've been in, you know, had so many different musicians back me up that, you know, were very, very talented and someone off to first with super careers and others are just like me. They're just playing around. It's just keeping it going, <laughs> playing as much as you can. But. Yeah. I call it the art life art for the sake of it. Life. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah I, uh, I don't consider myself a person with a career of like really any in any medium, but I just I sort of find a way to keep doing everything that I want to do. Right. And I feel like that's the spirit of Casco Bay in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, as, as long as you do what you like, what you love or whatever, it's, it's, a, it's all good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can, can I ask you some questions about, um, you, you said you hadn't been able to really play guitar because your fingers have, aren't able to feel the strings. Yeah, these, um, these last string for finger are you, are you finding a way to... I'm relearning. Yeah. I'm reteaching myself to play like finger pick with three fingers rather than using all of them. And, um, and because they're really like numb, they get in the way when I'm strumming. So I have to learn how to strum without them hitting the strings. I won't feel, I don't feel them hitting the strings, but you can hear what's happening. So um, I'm adapting. That's why I said, probably I'll be back out performing again in 2023. Because I, I think by then I'll be able to have, um, you know, gotten my fingers back in shape and, and maybe these things will start to li- liven up again or, you know, wake up and work. So, yeah. I, 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 Are you anticipating that they will? I'm them? hoping so because um, I was, I'm being sent to a neurologist who and the people that I talked to said that there's, they can do like electrical stimulation 
to get the nerves to start functioning again. So that might be part of the treatment, you know, to in order to get them to you know fire the nerves back up. So I hope that works. Yeah. Because uh, one other option is open tuning, where you really don't need all all five. You can reinvent everything in open tuning. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because I, I very rarely use open tunings. Um, I used to years ago, but then I got tired because in the younger days, I'd have to carry four guitars with me to every gig because one was tuned in C, one was tuned to D. One, you know, And so for as you're switching songs, you're switching guitars. And then I said, wow, this, I need to make this more compact. I said, I can't be carrying all these guitars with me all the time. So that's when I said, I taught myself all the songs that were in open tuning in standard tuning. And now I carry one guitar with me and I just play. And I got this from Bruce Coburn, the style of how to do this and how to make six string stuff sound like it's open tuning. And um, it's been pretty successful for me. I mean, hardly anyone ever notices when I'm playing a song that it's not the open tuning because of the way that I'm, I'm playing it. You know, it's just the technique that, that I've been you know, using. Like I said, it's a technique I kind of stole from Bruce Coburn, you know, by watching him and listening to him. I said, ah, I know how to do that, or I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah, there are several like songs that are originally done in open tuning that I just won't do them as they're as they were originally done. I'll figure out like even if I have to use a capo and retool the whole thing, right? Because it's a pain in the ass. I, I remember seeing on the late show, one of the late shows. I don't remember which one. Uh, maybe it was David Letterman or someone, but they had brought Led Zeppelin back for the Kennedy honors and oh right. Um, they had a they put a picture up of like all these guitars on a stage and the the host was like do you really need all those guitars and jimmy page goes yes and he could recount exactly which guitar was for what song because they right. were all in different tunings right <laughs> he's like this this one is for these three songs and then this one over here we just that's for that one song and we might not play this one song but sometimes the audience wants it so we keep the guitar around you know like it's just right. And he, from like decades ago, he remembers what every guitar was for. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I could understand that. And you do. Yeah, I mean, you get to know your guitars. You know, they're, you know, it's like your extra musician friend that's going to come in and sit in. You grab this guitar that's tuned in C, which is a real strange tuning, or, you know, the standard one is open D or, or, or dad gad, which is a very Irishy kind of one. Um, you know, or open G's and stuff like that. Um, you get to know which guitars are, are associated with which songs without even thinking about it. It's just, oh yeah, that's the seven fourteen for that song, you know, and it's the four twelve for this song, and you. Know. <laughs> but yeah, you do, and I mean, of course, you talk to people like Led Zeppelin and those guys. Well, they have so many roadies and people you know carrying 50 guitars around with you is not their problem all they have to do is show up on stage <laughs> you know all that stuff is ready and waiting for them you know but when you're someone like me you're toting around all these things and and yeah so out of necessity i wanted to scale down so 
I relearned all the open tuning songs in standard tuning. So, but, but it's, it, that was a challenge in itself too. So, but it worked. <laughs> you know what I've been looking at recently? How to build them. I've been building, I started out by rebuilding an old Yamaha electric guitar from scratch. So I got this $20 like Yamaha, looked like the one I used to have, black and black with a white pickguard. I took it all apart, threw out the electronics, scraped it down to just a wood block, and I just started rebuilding the whole thing. Right. Um, and it's weirdly easy to build an electric guitar. Yeah. Have you ever have you ever looked into doing something like that? I've I've changed the guts around it, electric guitars, yeah. and I've changed necks, but I've never actually built one myself. And that or an acoustic. I've done the same thing. I've I've reset and taken necks off of the acoustics and stuff like that, but and, you know, and gone inside and fixed bracing issues. Oh, interesting. Um, but but never actually built one. Um I feel like if you're doing that already, you could probably build one. I think if I had really, I had a wood shop, you know, I could do that, you know, and time, I probably could do it, but I don't have either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I was trying to, well, I I started doing it because I was trying to find a way to get back into it. I don't know. Past 20 years, I never really played guitar much. Ever since I moved to New York, I, I went through them and then whenever times got tough, I'd sell them. Um, but I finally, over the past, like, I guess seven years or so, I started finding my way back to playing regularly. And one of the things is I get really obsessed easily, obsessed to a point where, oh, I need to do this, this, this. The reason I haven't made as many movies is because I get obsessed with cameras and I can't make a movie without this specific camera. And I've kind of gotten to a point where like, I'm allowing myself the guitar obsession only rather than buying them, um, I have to build them. So if I want like a Les Paul one, I have to build it. And then I have to figure out what I'm going to do with it. Or maybe I should know what I'm going to do with it before I build it or something like that. Like I try to rationalize the expense of building something. Yeah. Um, It's it's totally like evolved into this weird thing where, um, I don't know. I've always watched my obsessions. Now I'm allowing myself to be obsessed again. Yeah. Yeah. I have uh, a friend um, who originally he started out doing design work for Takamine guitars. And eventually he became, they have his own line of Takamine guitars, which he, he built. And he, every time he builds a new one, he always sends me like a promo of it and showing me that, you know, I don't, I play Taylor's, but you know, you know, I think he's trying to convince me to switch over, but I've been a Taylor person for years. I, in my early days, I played Martins, and then, and then I picked up one day. I picked up a Taylor, and I started playing it. And I said, "This is absolutely the guitar I'm going to play for the rest of my life." And you know, at one point, I had about ten of them, and uh, now I think I'm down to three or four but um i got rid of all my martins my d28 and stuff like that and i got rid of all that and moved over to taylor and i've never changed since that's really interesting because i remember you bringing the martin always when you whenever you were at the spar 
and Taylor always had a tailor. And that's how I remember that your setup. And I'm like, why doesn't he play Taylor? Because I always p- thought the Taylor guitars played so beautifully. And whenever I'm visiting Sam Ash, I go straight to the Taylors first. Yeah. Like, just because, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing down there, but they make them right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in the beginning with, with Taylor and I, Taylor was playing my Taylor. And I was playing another guitar because <laughs> so, he he didn't have a guitar at the time. He he he, he had a, a, an old beat up thing, but it was like it was god awful. And so I said, we can't play out with you playing that thing. So you use this, and then eventually, I think it was probably about a year, maybe a year and a half into playing out with me that he got his. We went down to Boston. And got him his tailor, his first tailor. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Now he's got a couple of tailors. He, a couple. I know he's got the. Uh, I think it's called the T five or something. It's kind of electric acoustic um, tailor. He's got that, and he's got like an uh, Taylor twelve string. Oh, those uh, sound beautiful. Yeah, he. But he's yeah, he's got a few tailors there. So he's still playing, but. I don't think he performs. I think mm. he just plays for his own enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I'd read somewhere that like there was the, their way of, in, the way they have pickups in the, in their guitars is different than what a lot of other manufacturers are doing where it's like in the, it's in the neck. Theirs is actually, there's five different microphones, five different in there. And, um, there's a very famous. Um, uh, wait, I should have researched some of this stuff before you asked me. But oh, uh, there's okay. a very famous um, guy who designed uh, studio recording boards, and he came in and he developed what's called the Taylor Expression System. That's and the it's one. five different. It's got one on the neck. It's got three on the bottom. Five microphones, I think, all together, or five, whatever you, pesos, or all together in strategic spots inside the guitar. And so, um, I think it's, maybe it might have been Rupert Neve, um, who was the guy. Um, but anyhow, that's where the expression, the Taylor expression system came from. And now I had old Taylors that didn't have expression systems in them. And I sent them all back to Taylor and said, put expression systems in them. So now all of my tailors have expression systems in them, even the ones that were originally just an acoustic guitar with nothing in it, no, no pickups. So, but I went, yeah, once that, once that expression system came out, I was sold. Very good, very good system. That's interesting. I didn't know that they would like install something after the fact on an older guitar. Oh, they honor their guitars no matter who owns it. I could sell mine to you, and you could have something go wrong and send it back, and they'll honor it. They'll fix it. That that they stand behind their guitars. Hmm. You know, they don't ever want anyone to think this is a you know this is a crummy guitar or whatever you know or, or you can't get any service on the thing you know. Yeah. They no, really don't know. Yeah. I mean, I've sent mine back. I sent one, my first one, which was an 810, uh, Taylor 810 with no pickups, nothing in it. And 
quick story. I was playing a gig and I didn't have my guitar. It was the middle of the winter and I called my wife and I said, put the guitar on the boat. Give it to one of the deckhands to have them bring it into the cabin and I'll be at the Casco Bay Lines when, when, we, uh, when we come. So the thing comes over and I get to the gig and I open it up and I watch the top of it just spider crack. The deckhand left it out in February in the freezing cold on outside on the boat. And when oh. I opened it in the heat of the club, it just, it like spider webbed the yeah. whole thing. And so um, I sent it back to Taylor for reconditioning. And it came back brand new, like brand new. <laughs> they stripped all the lacquer off of it, re-lacquered it, did the whole thing. And it cost me that much. Oh, wow. That's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of them. Taylor guitars. Yeah. That, that, that can was not a musician. Maybe, or maybe <laughs> they just didn't understand how lacquer works. I don't know. Right. But, uh, yeah, that lacquer too. I, I learned all about that lacquer recently because, um, that shit is dangerous. I don't know if you ever sprayed it, but like it's this, yeah. it's called 2K clear coat. It's so like you, you have to wear a respirator because it will harden inside your lungs. Like uh, it's, it's horrible stuff, but it makes it look shiny. So. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's sort of an extended answer to your first question when we connected. What I've been, what have I been up to? <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah, so. yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad you uh, still dabble in it. You know. Yeah. It's always good. Yeah, I kind of became obsessed with like just learning learning it proper. I feel like when I first learned guitar, I just wanted to learn all these licks and these songs or even just parts of songs. I never really played songs and um, I've become obsessed with taking all the songs that I really love and just kind of learning how to perform them accurately. Mm -hmm. One song that I recently realized is actually a much more complex song than people realize. It's this song, Jack and Diane. Yeah. It's three chord song. A E D. But the way it's done is in triads, and it's a multitude of different triads across the whole neck, depending on whether you're singing the verse, the chorus, or the interlude. Exactly. It's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It's another good writer, John Cougar Mellencamp. Or John Mellencamp now, I guess. I don't think he he dropped dropped the Cougar. But he, uh, there's a great story to it where, like, this guy, David Bowie's guitarist, kind of took his three chord song and built all that guitar work for him. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you if you know that guy uh, Mick was it Mick Ronson? Have you ever heard Mick of him? Ronson? Yeah, guitar player. Yeah, yeah, Mick Ronson. Yeah, that's the guy. Yeah, he's the one who uh, who did all the the acoustic guitar work on Jack and Diane. Oh, huh. and that's you can tell too because like when John Mellencamp plays that song now, one he plays it grudgingly. <laughs> And he plays it in the key of G with basic G, D, C, because right. that's he knows that the audience is going to sing, and it's easier, I guess, just to do it that way. 
Well, in a lot of cases, too, you know, you have to look at it. He was probably a teenager or very early 20s when he wrote the song. So as you get older, your voice changes and you need to change your songs around. You know, you, you have to lower the key because you can't quite hit those notes and stuff. I mean, I found that over my years of playing that I can't play the songs that I played in the 70s in the same key today because I have to I have to rework them so that my voice will be able to play it. Just change the key, maybe down a half step or up a half step or whatever it might be, down a full step. But, yeah, it happens. A lot of people do that. Have you had to do that um, with the songs that you were with the songs that you released on punt ever, since your release? Yeah. The way life should be. I no longer, it was played capoed and it was a little higher. Now I play it open huh, interesting. Without, without any capo. So a whole step down. Very cool. And that was because I, some of the notes just when you get older, they, they aren't there. <laughs> when you go to your head, hears them. Your ears hear them, but you can't, your voice can't make them hit that note because it's just a little too high. Yeah. yeah I remember when I was like in my early thirties, I used to be obsessed with singing, um, the Jamaica farewell. Yeah. And there's a high note. He's, he's always, always reaching, which I used to be able to reach and I can't do it anymore. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's just, uh, yeah sucks but it is what it is yeah i mean it, it really it happens i mean there's i can probably think of a few songs that um that i've i've changed from the original key to a lower key um yeah like um dan fogelberg's the reach that song which is i believe the original is capoed on the first fret and now i do that open because i needed that half step in of for for the change in my voice so but yeah yep it's it's not uncommon to go to concerts and you know if you're aware you go hey <laughs> why are they playing that in this key instead of the original key and it's all because probably the voices yeah. yeah, I noticed that with the Who too. I forgot. I keep forgetting that. Like, I see these shows sometimes. When I worked, when I first moved to New York, one of my first employments was with Virgin Megastore, and so they would send me to these concerts. So, like, they sent me to Meatloaf and the Who, and the Who sounded completely different. Just they didn't right. sound like the Who. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I still like to say that I went. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, you had a, you had a. I remember you having a kind of a funny story about like Woodstock, where like you bought the tickets and then you went and there was nobody there to take your tickets. The the fence was already knocked down. <laughs> yeah, they knocked down the fence. I always I always remember that became, when people talk about Woodstock. It became a free concert at, at a certain point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. Uh, I spent some time in the Hudson Valley, and there's this town called New Paltz. You ever been there? Yeah, I know where it is. Um, there's yeah. a university there as well, and 
I was doing a photo shoot up there and there's all these hippie shops like in downtown New Paltz and I'm going, what's up with these hippie shops? And the person who was hosting my shoot was like, oh yeah, they, they all went to Woodstock and on their way back, they kind of stopped here and never left. <laughs> that, that happened to a lot of people. <laughs> Some people never left Max Yags, Yasker's farm, I think. They're probably <laughs> still there. <laughs> Oh, why would you leave? <laughs> yeah. But when I it's so funny though. Whenever I like think about Woodstock, I think about your story of buying a ticket and then going there and everything's just, the gate's been knocked down and you just like kinda yeah. win. Yeah. But I had like ticket to hold for posterity reasons and you know. Yeah. You still have it? I I think my daughter does. Hmm. She used it in high school. Uh, for a you know one of those show and tell things or something like that, because I was 15 years old when I went to Woodstock, and I took my daughter to the 25th anniversary when she was 15. That was 94. Uh, 94, yeah. Yep. So, oh yeah, I have that album. I like that one. Yeah, it was very good. I mean, it was really well organized and stuff uh three different stages and and it was cool because you could wander from one stage like you could be watching somebody like joe cocker on one stage and then move along and the cranberries were over on another stage you know it was really well 94 was a, a well organized concert you know i also feel like a lot of the modern bands of that era were at their best like I discovered the Cranberries not because of their radio play, but because I just happened to acquire Woodstock '94's CD, and they just sounded so good on it. Yeah, great day too. Yep, they were great. I feel like I'm learning a lot. Like I didn't know that your album was recorded in Connecticut. I, you know, yeah. There's a lot of details. The guy who mixed and mastered it was Joe Bryan. Joe Bryan. Is he the guy who has that really prestigious mixing studio in Portland? Yeah. That's the name. Uh, oh, no. You're thinking of um, Gateway Studios, and that's Bob Ludwig. Oh, yeah, Bob Ludwig. That's yeah. where, like, Eric Clapton and... Yeah. I see his name all over the place. Everybody, everybody in their name. Elton John, they all come and master with him. Yeah, yeah. I Because um, he... He he was one of the places where like every three months I would drop off my resume. I'm like, I want to learn what you do, and then uh, yeah, he's done like I think three quarters of the music collection that I have. Oh yeah, I mean he's <laughs> he's huge. I mean he's just he's huge. You know, mm. he was big when he was in New York City, and then he decided he didn't want to be in the city anymore. And he he is actually from Westbrook. And oh, so we moved back to Westbrook and started the studio on Cumberland Avenue, you know, Gateway Studio on Cumberland Avenue. I didn't know he was from Westbrook. I'm from yeah. Westbrook. Yep. He was originally from Westbrook. You know who else is from Westbrook? Who? Kevin Eastman, creator of the Ninja Turtles. Oh, God. <laughs> That's interesting. That's yeah. a fact I didn't know. Yeah, it's so random. And the rustic overtones, of course. Right. Yep. Westbrook turns out some some creative people. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, there's a lot of creative people that come out of Maine, period. Yeah. a lot. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's the through line that we're sort of finding here is like, Maine is a very creative place. It's a very collaborative place, too, and the islands specifically. I love that hearing like all these people from these islands is kind of coming together to perform. Um, I think that's the spirit of creativity. Right. But, yeah. How do you feel about being the 100th episode? Good. <laughs> I'm not 100 years old, but I, <laughs> 100 is good. It's a good, nice round number. <laughs> well, I, I feel like I always have these like these landmark numbered episodes. So like 50 was this children's author that I read as a kid named Avi. And I was like really happy to have him and i'm like this is a great 50th episode and 75 is going to be someone else i don't remember who my 75 was at this point but i like 100th episode i'm going to reconnect with with jeff and just talk about his music because i don't know i just i've been wanting to do it for a long time now last time i talked to you we were meeting at the dry dock and i don't remember what we were talking about but you had, you had, I do know that you mentioned that somebody asked about Kermit the Frog. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I used to, yeah. I, I used to get very, a lot of, uh, where's Kermit? <laughs> oh, so you got that more than once? Oh, God, yes. Oh, yeah. A lot of times. Because it was, and what was the, there was one particular song that Kermit used to do with me was. Um, if I could only been dreaming. Yeah, but no, there was an there was that one, but there was another one. Um, maybe it was like something like Margaritaville or something like the. It was a it was a popular song. Hmm. But I, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, long after Kermit left the left the band, <laughs> people were asking for him. <laughs> Interesting. That's so good to hear that. Like people remember that. Like because right. I never really. Th- it's hard to see how many people actually went to the spa every Sunday because I was just on right. the grill. Yeah. And so I would – what? so just to give context to people who might not be following this, Jeff would perform at the spa every Sunday. I was the cook at the spa. It was a restaurant on the island. And the manager of the restaurant, her son – had a Kermit the Frog puppet in the back office. And so when Jeff would play certain songs, like If I Could Only Been Dreaming, it's a song, these are songs that I know the timing of, and I know the inflections that Jeff would make. And so I would take the Kermit the Frog puppet, put it out the back window towards the deck, and it would be like Kermit singing. And I would bend the, I would bend the mask in a way to make it look like he was doing the inflections. Right. Uh, and and I guess that was probably the summer of O two was when we were really doing that. And the fact yeah. that that one summer uh, that you would continue to hear that years afterward, where's yeah. Kermit? Like, yeah. that's the power of a great <laughs> summer, I think. Wait, Kermit left and went to Hollywood. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I almost became a thing where, like, I wanted to buy that puppet from Lisa. And she's like, no, you can't have it. Right, right. <laughs> Right, Johnny. Johnny wanted it too badly. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, my cat jumped. <laughs> when you go back to performing, uh, are you going to yeah. update social media to let us know? Oh yeah, yeah, I'll be, yeah. Things will be coming out and stuff like that. 
I'll have um, at this point I'll have more people to um, to actually like record my performances. I have some things on YouTube, not too many, but I have some things on YouTube that uh, that people have recorded over the years. There used to be a guy from Newport um, who used to come in and, and record some stuff that I did, and he was really good. I mean, he had he had a simple recorder with a you know with a like an iPhone thing, and it was some of the sound was amazing. I was like, this is this is album quality you know you know and usually you don't get that when you're doing live recording live stuff you know but he was very very good at it so are you gonna have you looked into putting punt on um like spotify or one of those services i had it on something years ago i can't and i i don't know if it was spotify but it was some it was some you like some music station thing like that but it wasn't spotify i can't remember the name of it but it was years ago and um you know as i was doing other things i lost track of a lot of that stuff you know just as like it when you asked me to do this i you know that's when i said oh god let me go dig back in my archives and see what kind of stuff i still have you know that i had done in you know in years ago and stuff and I, I was surprised they came up with what seven i think six or seven songs you know but uh i'm sure if i go back to my friend in connecticut uh there's probably reels and reels of songs that have been recorded but never anything done with them <laughs> and they're sitting in their cases in his uh controlled atmosphere room that he keeps all his master tapes in so we want to hear it. Well, at least I want to hear it. Um, yeah. Well, hopefully someday we can. Right. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, when well, I'm in town again, I'm going to let you know. All right. Great. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you for coming on my show. Right. You take care. All right. Bye. Bye. And that was my conversation with Jeff Cusack. His album is Punt. I'm going to put a link to his website um, and his social media page just so you can get in touch with him if you if you want to. And um, we'll go from there. If he releases his work digitally through Spotify or something, I'll definitely update the links in the future because I, I do love his music. I think a lot of you out there will appreciate what he does as well. And thank you. Thank you for celebrating the 100th episode with me, and I'll see you on the next round. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.